See, I was a popular kid, and I was down with what popular did. Thought I was cool being a bit different, but me and my true self, we were a bit distant. Lied about stuff so I could look good. I played ball with the thugs so I could look hood. Accepted only because I professed it. You would think at home, man, the kid was neglected, but mom and pops took care of me. Yeah, comparingly, I'm raised better than most kids would ever be. I never smoked or did drugs. It was never me. But females, man, they really got the best of me. I fronted for the masses. I stunted in my classes. I played Hollywood like hundreds of them actors. I was thirsting for something just to fill my void. Inside now, I'm just searching for the joy. It's just me. See, I remember back when times really hit. When I would act up, my mom and pops really flipped. I was good in school. My grades were straight. I handed in old work, but I changed the date. <laughs> See, I thought that I was fly, and that name was straight. Turns out that it wasn't, and that name was fake. Even though I had stuff, I really wanted more. If you asked who I was, man, I really wasn't sure. All I knew was self, I was stuck on me, and I only had faith in the stuff I see, but trust me, life then appeared so lovely, but inside I was in need for love to hug me, see? I know about the image, how you front with a mask. See, I know about the things that you did in the past. See, I know about looking good, but feel like trash. Let me add, I'm divided, hope you get that math, it's just me. It's just me. It's just me. And that was my experience. I wrote that to share, to tell my experience. For me growing up, there was this nagging narrative that somehow I was just unworthy. I was just not good enough. And let me, let me see if anybody can relate to that. Has anyone in here, have you ever made some decisions in your life, uh, set some goals and was like, you know what? I'm going to write that book, or uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really work out and, and get my, my workout on, or I'm going to pursue that business, or I'm going to fill out that application, I'm going to write that letter, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do X. And then there's this, this nagging voice that tells you, who do you think you are? You can't do that. And maybe uh, even some of us here today, maybe you are, uh, you, you, you are a Christian, and there are times you're like, you know what, I'm going to get my Bible reading on, I'm going to get my study on, I'm going to read the Bible in a year, or I'm going to get really closer to God, I'm going I'm to I'm increase the, the, the knowledge that I have of the Bible, and I'm going to really dive into God. And then there's this voice that says, you miss once, you're not a real Christian. What's wrong with who you think you are? See, this voice, this narrative in my mind, and sometimes maybe the little voice in, in, in your mind, in the back of your mind, has a name. And that name is shame. It's shame. And before we move further, I love uh, Brene Brown, who's a researcher on this. This is how she defines shame. She defines it like this. She says, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. See, shame's desire is for us to believe that uh, we are not good enough. Today we're going to examine shame. 
Today, we're going to treat it like a science experiment. We're going to cut it open and take a look at its origins. See, last week, uh, if you're here for the first time, last week here at Renaissance, we started a series called Anatomy. And in our anatomy series, we're going to look at some stories in the Bible uh, to deconstruct concepts like deception. And uh, Jordan talked about deception last week. To deconstruct things like shame, uh, which we're going to talk about today, and envy that we'll talk about later. And all of this, we see that the, the devil's desire is to take shame and allow it to ruin our lives, to use it to ruin our lives. Now, there are some of us who, when you hear the word shame, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know that voice oh too well. Like you, you and that voice are really close, and you know it. You're like, oh, shame. That, oh, that's, maybe you didn't have the language. We're like, oh, yo, I, I know that. But maybe there's some of us here today that when you heard shame, you're kind of like, well, I don't know if I relate to that. And, and let me give you a couple thoughts there. Here's one. The research shows that the only people who don't wrestle with shame are sociopaths because it's a disorder. <laughs> That's an interesting fact. I mean, I, I read it. I, I read it, and I wrote it down, and I used it. So on some level... We are experienced, and I I'm, I'm really don't want to make light of personality disorders. Those are real things, yes? I'm not making light of that at all. But the research shows that uh, because a sociopath uh, doesn't really have a conscience, it's the only way that they really don't wrestle with shame. So most of us are experiencing or wrestling with shame in some way, shape, or form. Here's another thought. Part of the reason uh, we may not relate or, or connect with this idea of shame off top is because we don't really use the term a whole lot. I can't remember the last time I, I was like, I used the word shame. You know, maybe shame, shame, shame. I don't want to go to Mexico to war, 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 right? Maybe. I, I mean, I can't really remember the last time that I used the term shame. But it's a real thing, and it has a, has a voice. And the devil wants to use shame to kill our relationship with God. And here's the last thought. We live in more of what's called a guilt-based culture. American culture is, is so law and order. It's such a guilt-based uh, culture. You, you, the only way to be really good is when you stay within the rules and the law. When you're in bounds, you're good. When you're out of the rules and the law, you're not that good. And there's a penalty for that. And the penalty typically is if you do something then you can get back within the rules of the law. And so guilt-based culture allows us to mask the ill effects of shame. It allows us to not really talk about it, to ignore it, to push it down, to act like it doesn't exist. It makes it hard for us to really see the ill effects of shame in our life. And here's what the research says. The research says that guilt says, I did something wrong. And shame says, I am wrong. I am inherently wrong. Why are we talking about this today? We're talking about this today because it's important. Uh, most of us here are here today to, to grow in our relationship with God. And here's what you need to know. The enemy, there is a real enemy. 
His desire is to kill, steal, and destroy. The Bible says in John 10.10, the first half of the verse, it says that the enemy comes to kill, to steal, and destroy. That's his nature. The second half, which often gets popularized, says, but I've come that they may have life and life more abundantly. But there is a real enemy whose desire is to sift you like wheat and to destroy your relationship with God. And one of the tools that the enemy uses to do that is shame. It's to either keep you from God and those of us maybe who have a relationship with God to not allow it to deepen or grow. It's an important thing for us. Bottom line. Here's the bottom line. You know that you're experiencing shame when the narrative you start to believe becomes, I am not good enough. So I don't really think the question is whether or not we have felt feelings of shame. We may or may not have had the language to express that. Maybe we do now. But I think the issue is how do we experience shame? How does shame actually show up in our everyday life? And I want to talk about some ways I think we experience shame. Here's the first one. It's through failure. I think it's through failure. Uh, Think about it like this. Uh, There's someone who has a lot of talent, skills, and ability, and they're on a job, and that job is affirming them, and uh, they're they're growing in the organization, and then they're able to step out, uh, and they do a separate project. And that project that they do goes really well. And the person that they service says, yo, you are super dope. You're amazing. Why don't you do this full time? Why don't you why don't you, like, do this? Do this as a business. And not only did they affirm you verbally, but they affirm you with some money. Somebody say amen. Right? They affirm you even with their dollars. And uh, you go back to work on Monday. And you're at the desk, but you're paralyzed. You're like, you know what, man? This is not the time. This is not the space. This is not the season of my life to be doing this. I have to be like, this is not it. And what's happening is uh, the devil is using shame because you know what? Previously, if you look back in the corridor of your history, there were a couple failures. And, and you failed miserably. And shame is telling you there's no way you can do this. You're not good enough. You're not able to step out and do this. Maybe even uh, the shame of, of reading the Bible Maybe, maybe you, you, you say, you know what, there's some spiritual goals that you set for yourself, like we said before, and, and you're trying to move and grow in that. And for the Christian, uh, uh, shame, the, the devil is using shame to say, you know what, you can't, who do you think you are? What kind of Christian do you think you are? You failed at reading the Bible last time. How could you do it now? One of the ways I think we experience shame is through failure. Here's another one. Uh, I think through rejection. I think we experience shame through rejection. There's someone who's supposed to love you. There's someone who's supposed to care about you. And over and over, you're trying to develop a relationship with them, and they just seem uninterested. They seem like, you know what, Uh, I'm good. And they cut themselves off from you, never really responding, never really trying to get there. And you have this inherent desire to be in relationship with them. And it's through that rejection, that you begin to develop the narrative, I must not be good enough. That's why they don't want me. I'm not, I'm the problem. And it's through rejection 
that we experience shame. And the enemy wants to kill, steal, and destroy our relationship with God and each other. And one of the tools he uses is shame through rejection. Here's another one, and this is real for me. Um, I think we experience shame in moments of weakness or limitations. See, uh, experiencing shame in a moment of weakness is different than failure. You typically experience shame when limitations arise that you can't overcome. You feel like you should, but you are unable to do it. For me, this really hits home. Uh, I remember thinking about, uh, I remember the first time my son uh, had some breathing challenges and uh, his allergies get really crazy during the season and it creates these breathing challenges. And he was about two or three. I can't really remember. And we tried to, um, uh, while we were experiencing, I had to figure out like what was happening. And so we rushed him to the ER and we get there to the ER. They say, hey, you know, it's too early to diagnose anything like asthma. Asthma it runs in my family. But hey, he's having this really severe respiratory reaction to uh, these allergies, and so you need to just grab an inhaler. And so they give us a prescription. I go to Rite Aid. I'm there. Uh, the, the woman turns the cash register around, and she's like, yo, it's going to be $50. And at that moment, I experienced shame because I could not afford it. I didn't have it. I was limited. And it was there where shame crept in. And it was like, yo, you, this is not like a, a budget thing. This is not like something you can rectify. Bro, what kind of father are you that you couldn't provide for your son? The devil's goal is to kill, steal, and destroy our relationship with God and each other. And he uses shame as a tool to do that. And one of the ways we experience shame is in our moments of weakness and limitation. Shame is a sneaky, sneaky thing. Here's another one. This is the, the last one, and this list by no means is exhaustive, but I think we experience shame through trauma. Here's the reality. When traumatic things happen in our lives, shame is always there telling us the issue was us. In some way, shape, or form, the situation either could have been avoided or handled differently if you were better. I was watching the interview of uh, Brene Brown and, uh, by Oprah, uh, and I thought Oprah's comment was spot on. I think she really helped me understand this. This is what she says. Oprah said, over the last 25 years, I've been trying to, tell, to help people understand that the real problem of sexual assault, because she is a sexual assault su survivor herself, is that most women are able to get over the sex part, but not able to shake the shame. Why? Because in traumatic situations, shame tells us that the situation happened because it's our fault. And I just want to pause and be very sensitive here. And I want to say that that is a lie from the pit of hell. There is no ounce of truth in that narrative. But the devil's, the enemy's goal is to kill, steal, and destroy to destroy our relationship with God and each other. And he uses shame to do that. See, at the core of shame is this idea 
that we've believed a lie that somehow we are not enough, that I am not enough. We all feel it. We all have experienced it on some level, and it's silently, silently working in our lives to kill us. Now, let's cut this thing open. Let's use shame. Let's, let's get our experiment on. Uh, I want to look at the Bible. I want to look at our passage this morning, so get your scalpels out. I really want to dissect this. I'm going to read the passage, and then we're going to go through it. Genesis 3, 7 through 11, starts this way. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said, to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Man, I want to dive in here, and here's where we're going to see the anatomy. I want to pull apart the pieces that make up shame from this text. Let's look right away at verse Seven, here's one of the pieces of shame. I think it's awareness. And not just uh, awareness, but negative awareness. This is what the Bible says in verse 7. It says, then the eyes of both of them were open. See, shame immediately makes us conscious of what's wrong. Negative awareness is focusing on all the things that are wrong. And check it, if you go earlier in the Bible in Genesis 2, the way the chapter of Genesis 2 ends, it ends with this powerful statement that Adam and Eve were in the, naked and unashamed. They felt, some translations say they felt no shame. So their nakedness was totally cool until they disobeyed. And then in Genesis 3, we see after they disobeyed, being naked gets associated with shame. Now nakedness no longer is a cool thing. It's shameful. It's embarrassing to be naked, to be vulnerable, to be exposed. Right here, we get to see negative awareness is like the brains of shame. It causes you to have a lens to see all what's wrong with you and with other people. Here's another one in verse 7, uh, another piece of, uh, of shame if we would dissect it. It's covering. We cover. Listen to what it says. Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves together and made coverings. See, it, if oh, negative awareness is the brains of shame, then covering is the body of shame. It's the skin. It's what everyone else is able to see. And think about it. When we feel shame bubbling up, uh, we typically try to cover. And here are some ways that we cover. We laugh about everything. We make a joke about it. Uh, Jordan and I were talking, like, even uh, when I told that story in first service, I made some jokes about that story where I couldn't afford the $50. And Jordan was like, don't do that. Feel the shame in it, bro. And we, we typically try to cover with laughter. We try to mask it, like, Everything's funny. Everything's a joke when it's not. 
Another way we do that is like we, we have this tough exterior. Most of you know I work with an organization called Young Life. I oversee our work here in the borough of Manhattan, uh, and I work with a lot of young people. And 95% of the young people I meet when we first meet them, they're tough. Nothing affects them. They're soldiers. And, and life at home could be really terrible. Maybe they didn't have three meals. Maybe moms and pops are not around. Maybe they've been sexually abused consistently over and over and over and over. And they've experienced a ton of trauma. And nobody has given them the tools or the, the language to navigate this world called adolescence. And they're sitting in shame. And they act like nothing matters. They shut down. There's this tough exterior where they can't feel anything. Another way I think we try to cover is we self-medicate. We jump into relationships that we know aren't healthy. We watch things to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. We talk about people. Come on, somebody. Those are the small ways we try to self-medicate. We, we use actual medication, drugs, alcohol. Why? We're trying to cover shame. We blame Later on in this text, if you see, when, when God approaches them in the breeze of the night, he says, yo, who told you? What's, what's Adam? What's good? What happened? There was a connection. Now I, I sense a breach in that. Adam is like, yo, it's the woman you gave me. <laughs> I mean, I didn't mean that to be funny, but I mean, take some, you lose some, bro. <laughs> but that's, we start to blame. We act like. It's everybody else's fault but us. There is no feeling we can feel. We just, we just cover it up. Because remember, being, uh, uh, when we are guilty, there is some good in saying I've done something wrong. There's some good in that. But shame is not what God wants for us. We try to uh, cover in other ways. And, and again, this list is not exhaustive, but here's one of the ways I think we try to cover. We just straight out ignore it. Yo, I don't got time for that. I'm not dealing with that right now. I got to go to work. I got kids. I got a family. I got to, we'll worry about that later. And we put it in the parking lot. But we never go back. We don't know what islet's on. We ignore it. See, the devil, the enemy, wants to kill and destroy our relationship with God. And one of the tools he uses is shame. And we get to see the skin of shame, the body of shame is covering here in verse 8, walk with me through this text. Uh, another way is hiding. We hide. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, hiding is the heart of shame. Hiding is how shame draws its power. It's the source of its existence. According to Brene Brown, shame needs three things to grow exponentially in our life. It's silence, secrecy, and judgment. Silence, yo, we just flat out, we don't talk about it. Things happen in our lives, and we just don't talk about it. Secrecy, we intentionally keep it away from other people. We intentionally hold it in. There's opportunity to share. We're like, nah, I'm good. And then judgment. Judgment is an opinion or a conclusion. And a lot of times, not only do maybe the people we love and the people we're supposed to get support from are very judgmental in our lives. 
But the most judgmental people in our lives are us to ourselves. And the way that shame grows is silence, secrecy, and judgment. Each of these things make shame grow. If you, Brene Brown says this, and I love this visual. If you put shame in a Petri dish and you add a little bit of secrecy, a little bit of silence, and a little bit of judgment, it's going to grow like wildfire. Here's the last one we see in this text. This is uh, part of the anatomy of shame. It's fear. Verses 9 through 11. Listen to this. It says, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And this is the sad part. We become so fearful about being exposed that our whole lives are altered. We live in fear, but we also live out of fear. There's things that we do because we're scared, because we're afraid, like hide, like cover. And there's things that we don't do because fear has paralyzed us. And that's not God's desire for our lives. It's the exact opposite of the way God wants us to live. What I love about Brene Brown's research on this particular topic is this. She says, the antidote for shame is empathy. It's not honor. The antidote for shame is empathy. And I love the the idea that being empathetic is you stepping into the shoes of someone else. I love how the scriptures say that the the, the church is supposed to uh, uh, increase people's joys and divide their sorrows. We mourn with those who mourn and we cry with those who cry. That's our place as the church, those of us who are following Jesus. But the antidote for shame is empathy. And I'm going to just keep it a buck. Honestly, uh, when I first read that, I was like, yo, that's not really that spiritual. Like, I don't know really how to use, I don't know how to use that. Empathy, cool. And like, I'm going to be very vulnerable here. I'm trying to practice. Like, like if you do personality studies on me, like, I wrestle with empathy. And my wife better not say amen. <laughs> I got I to gotta be vulnerable, man. And so I'm like, yo, I, I hear it. That's the antidote. Yo, then it hit me. Stop, Derek. <laughs> He's been in my house a couple of times with those conversations, but it hit me. If, this, if, if empathy is the antidote, then God, through Jesus, has provided the most empathetic act the world could ever know. The most empathetic thing we could ever see is that the God of the universe put on skin and became a person. And in the scripture, we get to see the empathetic Jesus. There's a story that I love. It's really one of my favorite passages. And it, it's, it's titled, uh, the, This Woman Caught in Adultery. And let me paint the scene for you. Here's the scene. There's some dudes who, who, who claim that they are the holders of the law. They are the ones who make sure people are following God. And they run into this place, they run into this room, and they grab this woman, they catch her in the act. The scriptures tell her they catch her in the act, which is crazy to me, and they pull her out into the middle of everything. Right, yo, the Bible is supposed to be experienced, not just read. When I think about that, I'm like, yo, that's crazy. 
but they leave the dude, which is another, like, injustice at that time. Like, that dude needs to come too, right? Amen. Let's keep it real. And that's really even biblical, right? They, they even, the people who are supposed to know the Bible the best missed it. Like, it's even biblical in Leviticus that the dude is supposed to come too. Both people are supposed to show up to be stoned. But somehow, they just grab the woman, they bring her to the front, uh, and, and she's exposed in front of everybody, and they bring her to Jesus. They're like, yo, the law says, guilt culture, the law says that she's supposed to be stoned for this act. What do you say? Jesus, in his masterful way, gets down, and he starts writing in the sand. And yo, here's what's dope about that. He, I believe, and, and again, I, I necessarily can't prove this, but I, I fully believe, knowing what Jesus has done for us, he really wanted to take the attention off of her. Like, it doesn't matter what he wrote in the sand. That, we'll never know that. It's not recorded. We'll never know. But what we can see is that he wanted to deflect the attention from her in her vulnerable, shameful place and point it to him. All the attention is like, what is he writing? What is he doing? And now, at this point, uh, he challenges the crowd. He's like, yo, if, if y'all are so perfect, go ahead, throw the first stone. Dudes realize they clearly have issues in their life. They drop the stones and they walk away. And then the text tells us who's left. It's Jesus and her. And in their communication, their face-to-face communication, and man, I desire for you to experience God like this, that you could talk to him face-to-face like one talks to a friend. And, and Jesus tells this woman, he says, look around you. Who condemns you? Check it. I don't. I don't. I'm not the one to condemn you. I'm not the one to condemn you. And what is condemnation? It's heaping on shame. It's feeling more unworthiness. Jesus says, that's not why I'm here. Then he says, go, sin no more. And I think the beautiful part of that is that you know what really uh, happens, and I think that's what connects this story to shame, but I love just this idea that Jesus knew sometime in the near future he was going to be going to the cross, taking all the stones for her. He's going to be wearing all the shame for you and I. And here's something you might not know. The pictures, the really nice, neat, Americanized pictures of Jesus hanging on a cross with a little towel around him, and he's kind of neatly hanging. It's really not true. He was beat to a pulp. The Bible says he was unrecognizable, and he was completely naked. Think about it. Make the connection from this to Genesis, where nakedness once was supposed to be a good thing, and after the disobedience, it became associated with shame. Jesus goes to the cross, all shameful, fully exposed for you and I, and he says, come all who are weary, who are heavy laden. I will give you rest. I have taken the shame of the world all the times I didn't have it, all the times I I couldn't provide in my limitations. All the times shame creeped up in my life, Jesus says, I took that to the cross. And guess what? It's as far as the east is from the west. Those two things will never meet. You'll never be connected to it again, for I bore it all 
the work of you and I is to believe that he's the one who bears the shame of the world. You no longer have to be paralyzed by it. You no longer have to hide. You no longer have to cover. You no longer have to be negatively aware of the, th- the wrong things that you've done in life. Why? Because Jesus has endured the shame of the cross. And he did it for you and for me. So in closing, here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell your story. I want you to share your story. I'm not talking about the nice little package part that you share for those of us who follow Jesus in the superficial Christian community circles. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the real feelings that you felt, the real issues that you struggle with. The fact that, yo, you know what, uh, I have these addictions and, and, and I'm a Christian, so I, I can't really go into it. But we need to because shame is killing us. I want you to tell your story. Uh, in community group, th- this is the time they're going to ask you, yo, hey, what's good? How's everybody doing? Maybe there's going to be a check-in moment. And there's going to be a temptation for you to be like, yo, let me let that pass. I'm saying resist the temptation and step in and tell your story. Really share what's happening with you. Be vulnerable. Be exposed so that the Holy Spirit could do his work. He could break the shackles and the strongholds of shame in our life. I want you to tell your story. And even if you don't follow Jesus, I want you to tell your story like it is. Only you can tell your story. Hey, I want to uh, leave scripture as a sweeping, washing wave over you as you leave this morning. If you would do me this favor, close your eyes for me. Listen to this. You are to say, this is what the Lord God says to Jerusalem. This is Ezekiel 16. Your origin and your birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your birth, your umbilical cord wasn't cut on the day you were born. And you weren't washed clean with water. You were not rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one cared enough about you to do even one of these things out of compassion for you. But you were thrown out into the open field because you were despised. On the day you were born, I passed by, I passed by you and saw you thrashing around in your blood. And I said to you, as you lay in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you, as you lay in your blood, live. Then I passed by you. Listen to the Lord saying this to us this morning. Then I passed by you and I saw you. And you were indeed at the age for love. So I spread the edge of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I pledged myself to you, entered into a covenant with you. This is the declaration of the Lord. And you became mine. I washed you with water, rinsed off your blood, and anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and provided you with fine leather sandals. I also wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. I adored you with jewelry, putting bracelets on your wrists and a necklace around your neck. I put a ring in your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was made of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate 
fine flour, honey, and oil. You became extremely beautiful and attained royalty. Your fame spread among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor, which I bestowed on you. This is the declaration of the Lord. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you have allowed your words to wash over us. There is a real enemy who has come to kill, steal, and destroy, to use shame as a tool to destroy our life with you and our life with each other. But you have bore the shame of the world on the cross. You endured its shame, and you tell us to believe in the one who was sent. Daddy, let the Holy Spirit do its work in us. Let us be rid of shame's ill effects. In Jesus' name, amen.